you have put into our lives. And we thank you for the people that kind of help us keep going and the people that bring a smile to our face. For the people that, as we saw this morning, teach us the word of God. We thank you for the people that pray for us. We thank you for the people that are just such a blessing to us. And it all comes as a gift from you to us. So thank you, Lord, for this, your body, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for our time in the word. Thank you for what we are going to learn. We pray that you would cause all of our senses to be alert and to be listening to what the scripture says, that we might not just be a hearer, but a doer of the word. Change us, conform us to the image of your son, save those who are lost, and may it all be to the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's in his precious name that we pray. Amen. If you will open your Bibles now, we are in the uh, Gospel of John, of course, and we are in um, the fourth chapter of the book of John, and we are getting ready to uh, have an encounter by the well, and you know that story, but before we get right into that story of this woman who has been uh, immoral and uh, someone that is kind of an outcast, Not only because she was a Samaritan, but she also was just not well thought of in her village. And you know how that type of thing can go. But uh, I thought about how a word I've heard kicked around in our church a lot. And then my thought was, well, how many of us really understand and think about providence? What is providence? Is it just blind chance? Is it uh, luck? Is it uh, just, you know, one of those things that happens? Is it always spontaneous? Is it uh, uh, something that we had nothing to do with? I had a man that came to me one time, and uh, he was a friend, and he told me about a girl that he had met, and he said, I think God might be in it. And I said, oh, really? Why do you think that? And then his whole answer was based on this. Because I wasn't looking for her, she wasn't looking for me, and we just happened to meet, and we liked the same things, and then I saw that on her desk was a certain book that I had read, and I just knew that everything was coming together. And I told him, I said, you need to be very, very careful. Because he saw that as, well, that's the sovereignty of God. All these, quote unquote, coincidences coming together, it must be God. And I said, well, it may not be either. I said, if I were the devil and I wanted to defeat you, all I would do was make some things come up in your life that you couldn't explain and make them be coincidental so that you would think it was God. So we have to be careful. Yet at the same time, isn't it true that God is always working in our life and he is always arranging our life in ways we never could see and we never could understand And he does it for his glory, for our good, and also for his purposes. So what is providence? Is it just simply that uh, I happened to uh, be driving along and there was a wreck, so I took a detour and then I met somebody and we fell in love and got married or something like that? Uh, That could be. It certainly could be. But I think we need to get a little bit more... Uh, direct in our understanding. So here's a definition. I'll summarize it in a moment. The providence of God means 
the continuing action of God in preserving His creation and guiding it toward His intended purposes. Why is it getting colder this year? Because of the providence of God. Why does the earth tilt away from the sun at certain times toward the sun at other times? Because of the providence of God. Why is it that your heart is beating today? The providence of God. Why is it that you have any measure of strength today? The providence of God. Why are you going to eat a meal in a few hours? Well, maybe not a few hours, but a little while. may seem like it. Why are you going to do that? The providence of God. Now, I want you to notice that the word providence has the word provide in it. And this is the idea here. The Latin word pro means before. And the last part of the word provide or providence is uh, our word video, to see. And it means that God sees ahead every part of our life. And so you're going to go through a trial sometime. Hopefully it's later and not sooner, but you will go through more trials. And God has already seen to it, seen ahead, that you will be in the right place at the right time with the right people, the right situation, and every need is already met, and He's going to take care of you as you go through that, to see ahead, to see ahead. Now this definition we read out of a theology book, you saw that, I put it like this, providence is God guards And God guides. God is always guarding you and his creation. And he is guiding you. And that's why I don't put much stock in the idea of global warming. In so many years the oceans will be gone. And the polar ice caps will melt. And you know New York and all of that will be flooded. That type of thing. I don't sit around and worry about all of that. Because I know that there's a God who is controlling everything. And he is going to provide everything that is necessary for humans to live on this planet. Until the day comes when he destroys the earth. And makes a new heaven and a new earth for those of us who believe him. Now I also ought to think about that. I shouldn't worry about today. Because I know God will provide. His providence will care for me my family. Uh, I should not worry about 10 years from now because I know that the same God who will feed me and clothe me and shelter me today, he'll still be doing that 10 years from now. And so we rest in him because God guards and he watches over. He preserves everything in his creation and then he guides it to its intended purpose. And uh, we can rest in all of that because that includes you as well. Why have you made some moves in your life for God to get you here? Why have you experienced some things in your lives that may have even been uh, considered, humanly speaking, a negative for God to get you where you are today, to open up your understanding, to make you more humble, to make you more empathetic toward others, to make you more dependent upon Him, for you to realize maybe your blessings. We are so quick to just think, oh, this is just normal, and we don't see it as really the blessing of God. Now, when we read in the fourth chapter of John today, things change just a little bit. Jesus has been at the Jordan River, and John the Baptist was at the Jordan River too. And uh, some of John the Baptist's disciples were going, Hey, everybody's going to that guy you pointed out. And uh, John said, Well, he must increase, and I must decrease. 
Not a big deal. But this not only did something for John the Baptist, look what it did for Jesus. John chapter 4, verse 1. If you're ready to read from the scripture, would you say amen? amen. Therefore, and that's what connects it back to the verses we just read. Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus had baptized more disciples than John. See, that's a problem. Pharisees don't like this. Now all of a sudden their focus shifts from John to whom? Jesus. Okay? Not always a good thing from a human standpoint. When they heard, when he knew that they heard that uh, Jesus had baptized more disciples than John, and then John the apostle gives us in verse 2 clarification, though Jesus himself did not baptize, but his disciples. So we get back to verse 3, and it says, As a result of that, he left Judea and uh, departed again to Galilee. But he needed to go through Samaria. Samaria. That's important. So he came to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now, Jacob's well was there. I guess we could say still there because it was very old at the time of Jesus. And uh, there's a place now that they call Jacob's well that's still there as well. Now, Jacob's well was there. And Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat thus by the well. And it was about the sixth hour. And we'll stop right there today because we know, uh, most of you know what is going to happen with the woman that comes to the well and that interchange and how she gets saved. But we'll talk about that another week. But right now, I want you to look at these things, these verses that are, you know how uh, politicians kind of act like uh, where we live and the middle of the country is just flyover country, uh, only the coast matter. And we just, they just fly over this part of the world. Well, that's what we do with the Bible sometimes. I think these first six verses are verses that the casual reader just kind of, they just fly over that. The important part's that woman. And the important part's what takes place later. Not so fast. Slow down and pay attention. Because I want you to see that Jesus was at the Jordan River in the southern part of Israel. <clears throat> and now... God gets him up to go north, and he goes north a certain place. He could have taken the road that went through Perea on the other side of the Jordan and just skipped Samaria, or he could have gone up by the sea and skipped Samaria. Most Jews did that. They didn't want anything to do with Samaria, but he didn't. And he could have had a lot of strength and energy where he went two more miles, but he didn't. In his humanity, he was hot, he was thirsty, he was tired, and he sat down. Now, his disciples, we'll find out later, went to go get food. They went through a drive-thru or something like that. I don't know. And there Jesus is. Why didn't Jesus go? Because he was weary. He had to sit down. And there was a purpose even in all of that. Now think about this. If you take any one of those components, and there are probably more out, then the rest of John chapter 4 doesn't happen. And this lady doesn't get saved. All of this 
has to happen in order for this story to take place. And it's an illustration of how God preserves his creation. Think about all of those ancient things. They were ancient in the time of Jesus. Jacob's land and Jacob's well, that type of thing. And all of that happens so this encounter can take place. And then we said in the second half of that, God not only preserves, but he guides his creation toward its intended end. Now, the nation of Israel and the place where the Jews had, had lived for all those years before had been conquered and invaded and, and uh, uh, captivity, all of those kind of things, destruction, all of that many, many times by the time Jesus gets here. But the Jews were still living in that land as they are today. And that well was still there and it was still functional even though it was very, very old. Think about all of the things that had to take place. God guarded his creation and his son and he guided everything to that particular point for this encounter. Now when I see that, it, it makes my heart beat a little bit faster thinking God is doing that today in you and in me, and all around the world in ways we don't understand, in ways we can't see, but there's perfection in all of it. You can rest in the fact that God is taking care of you, taking care of your loved ones, taking care of this world that He created, and He is bringing everything together to its intended plan and purpose as uh, it is written out in the Word of God for us. In uh, Psalm 37, 23 and 24, you know this verse, most of you. And I want you to notice that even in this familiar verse, you can see the guidance of God and the preservation of God. Here's what it is. The steps of a good man, the righteous, are ordered by the Lord. There's guidance. Okay? There's guidance. He shuts doors. He hems us in. He uh, causes us by different things to go to a certain place, go a certain way, have certain experiences. The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord and he delights in his way. Now, think about that. Every step you take and every time the Lord changes your path or pushes you a certain direction or guides you into a certain thing, the Lord delights in it. You may not. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. That's not a delightful thing from David's experience in that psalm. But the Lord delighted in it because he had a purpose and a plan. He was doing something in David's life that David could not do for himself. Same thing is true for you. So the steps of a good man are ordered by God, and he, capital H, God, delights in his, lowercase h, the man's way. Now, sometimes, even in the providence of God, you stumble and you fall. Sometimes you go through a pathway that is hard, it's hard to see. There are obstacles in the way. There's an enemy that may try to trip you up. And so God gives you a promise. It says, though he fall, he shall not be utterly cast down. There's a good word for you today. For the Lord upholds him with his hand. 
Okay? So the steps of the righteous, the guidance of God in His providence. They're ordered of God. It's not by accident. And then when we stumble and when we fall, we find out that it's the Lord who upholds us through all of that. What is He doing? He is guarding us. He is preserving us until we have finished the course that we have here on earth. See it? That's providence. God guards and God guides, or God guides and guards, however you want to look at it, but both of them are true. And that's why you're here this morning. That's why the enemy hadn't killed you. The Bible says the thief comes but to kill. He would do that if he could. But God says no, because he guards you and he guides you. You're not here by accident this morning. You're not with the people you are with by accident this morning. That is the providence of God. God seeing ahead and God preserving and God guiding through all of that. Now, what does that have to do with John chapter 4? Well, let's try to answer this question. How did the Father, how did the Father's providence guide and guard Jesus in this situation? Okay? Let me let me tell you something. It's a little bit weird, a little bit unusual. But the first thing that I find is the pressure of success. Jesus' ministry is burgeoning. It is outdoing John the Baptist. It used to be everybody talked about John the Baptist. Now they're talking about Jesus. used to be John the Baptist had the biggest crowds in history. And now they're all going to Jesus and that type of thing. And what is happening now? The attention of the enemies of God and of redemption, the Pharisees, it was on John. In our other encounters with John the Baptist, the Pharisees are coming up. And, and of course, he accommodates them by calling them a brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come and uh, that type of thing. But they had their eye on John. What is he doing? Why is he doing it? Who does he think he is? How does this affect us at the temple? How does this affect us as the professionals? What is this doing? Is he taking away from us? Are the people giving more offerings to John than they are at the temple? Are they doing things that would take them away from what we have been teaching them? Are we becoming less important in their eyes? And now this guy out in the wilderness, man, everybody is going to him. They had their eyes on on John and with that every time they would show up is the idea of you better know we're watching and you better watch your step now all of a sudden things change in the last part of John 3 and Jesus and John are both at the Jordan River in different places but they're close enough to where John the Baptist disciples notice hey he's getting a whole lot more people the crowds are bigger there and uh, John says, he must increase and I must decrease. But they weren't the only ones that noticed. The Pharisees were paying attention too. And one of them said to the other, hey, you know what? I think we better pay attention to this guy over here more than we do to John the Baptist. His crowds are diminishing. He's kind of like a passing fad. But this guy is gaining steam. He's gaining momentum. People are coming to him. And I think... Jesus of Nazareth is the biggest threat. So now all of a sudden, the eyes of the people who want to kill Jesus and would be involved in his illegal trial and death, murder, they have their eyes upon him and everybody knows it. In fact, it says here, and the Lord knew this. So what does he do? 
he says to his disciples, pack up, we're going to head to Galilee. Now Galilee is where everybody assumed the Lord Jesus was from. He was, after all, raised in Nazareth, but they would forget that he was born in Bethlehem, which is in Judea. The Judeans thought themselves to be better Jews and far superior to those Galileans up north, but uh, they looked at Jesus as a Galilean rather than what he really was uh, from Judea. And so he's going to go back to his home territory. I guess it would be safer there. I guess the people there would be more accepting and that type of thing. And so he says, yeah, we need to get out of here. We've got to uh, get out of Dodge and we've got to go someplace else. Well, why did he do that? Was he a coward? And the thing that I want you to think about is, no, he had a purpose. What was the purpose of Jesus Christ? One thing, he was to come to earth so that he could die on the cross for our sins. Well, when I look at the life of Jesus, I find out that that may have been the Lord's intention, but it wasn't the devil's intention. Uh, Do you remember back in John chapter 2 at the wedding at Cana, when Mary asked Jesus to do something because I had no wine, his answer was, my hour has not yet come. What did he mean by that? What is his hour? Everybody has an hour. Everybody is experiencing hours. We're experiencing one right now. What did he mean by that? Well, think about these scriptures. In John 12, 27, Jesus said, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Is that some kind of code, some kind of riddle? No, he was speaking of his death. Was he trying to get out of his death? Was he to say, oh Lord, this is why I came, but never mind? No, he was ready for that. And when he talks about his hour, he's talking about his death. And God the Father preserved and guided Jesus by his providence away from anything that might be a threat to him because he had to go to the cross. Now, you remember, when we think about Christmas, Herod the Great tried to kill Jesus as a baby in Matthew chapter 2, verse 13. And it says, Now when they had gone, the wise men, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Get up and take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to destroy him. And the providence of God said, nope, that can't happen. He's got to grow up. He's got to get to the cross. He can't die any other way. In Matthew 26, verse 59, it says, Now the chief priest and the whole council kept trying to obtain false testimony against Jesus. Why? So that they might put him to death. But that didn't happen until his hour had come. God's providence protected him and guided him to that point. In Luke chapter 4, verse 28 through 30, it says, When they heard these things, all in the synagogues were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him, Jesus, out of the town and brought him to the brow of a hill on which their town was built, so that they could throw him down the cliff, but passing through their midst, 
he went away. You see, the devil kept trying to kill Jesus. People say, well, the devil was involved when he got put on the cross. Now, keep in mind, the devil wanted anything but the cross. That was where the devil was going to be defeated. The devil wanted to kill him as a baby. He wanted to kill him as a young adult. He wanted to kill him at the, uh, near the end of his ministry. Anything but the cross. In John chapter 10 verse 31 it says, The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. And Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? And the Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you being a man make yourself to be God. Uh, there's a verse for you for those people that say, Well, Jesus never claimed to be God. I think he did. The Jews understood it that way. And all of these attempts to kill him we're going to keep him from going to the cross. The providence of God said, nope, he's going to the cross. I will provide, I will guide, I will guard him until he gets there and no one can touch him until that point happens. That's the providence of God. And success is what drove him out of Judea, out of danger to Galilee. Some of us, we might think that, oh, if I could be successful, have a lot of money, have a lot of fame, have fortune, and really be a, a big shot that everybody looked to, you might hate it. Because a lot of those people receive death threats. They can't just run to Walmart anytime they want to or go through the Chick-fil-A drive-thru or anything like that. They have to have security. They always have to be careful where they go. Sometimes success can cause you to change the pattern of your life, and it did in Jesus. He could no longer stay there under the scrutiny of the Pharisees. He had to move, and he went to Galilee, uh, the place where he was from in that northern part of Israel. Number two, how did God get Jesus where he needed to be? Well, let's talk about this, the pressure of half-truths. And uh, they saw that Jesus is baptizing more. And John tells us, well, it wasn't really Jesus that was doing it. It was disciples. Oh, who cares about the details? That doesn't matter. We've got to get him. And we've got to trap him. And we've got to destroy him. Okay? Have you ever had the course of your life changed because somebody told a half-truth about you? You know what my mama used to tell me? A half-truth is, yeah, a whole lie. It's deceptive. And so the idea here was, Jesus is not actually baptizing, but the Pharisees were stirring up trouble because they assumed that Jesus was doing it. And because of that, it was best for him to leave. It was not time for him to be arrested. It was not time for him to die. None of that was supposed to happen yet. And so he leaves that area even though he was not the one baptizing but the disciples were so there's hostility focused on Jesus or getting ready to be focused and uh, Jesus this one who was born in Judea was raised in Galilee so he was never accepted in Judea they considered him a hick from the backwoods they considered him uneducated they considered him not to be a prophet not to be the son of God or anything like that and so he goes to uh, Galilee. Now all of this is part of the divine 
purpose, plan, providence, the sovereignty of God. His steps are being ordered and he is being preserved as all of this has happened. Can you see that? He is being guided and he is being preserved so that he can accomplish his ultimate goal while he's here on earth. That's the way the Lord works. So thirdly, look at what I call the miracle of the open door. So he left uh, Judea and he departed again to Galilee, but he needed to go through Samaria. Now, the Jews didn't typically go through Samaria, and we'll talk about the reason why in just a moment. But that was an open door for the Lord. Other people might have said, well, you can't do that. You can't go there. Don't walk through that door. And we've done that a million times to people. Somebody says, I believe God wants me to be a missionary, and I'm going to go to you know, some tribe in the jungle of South America. And we oh, no, what are you going to do with your degree? What are you going to do about your family? What are you going to do about your livelihood and your career? How can you make anything of yourself doing there? That's kind of the way people felt about a Jew going to Samaria. And I'm sure Jesus probably got some kick up even from his own disciples. What are you doing? Let's take this way and let's go back to the east. Or let's take this way and go to the west and uh, go by the sea. And let's avoid Samaria at all costs. But see, God guides and guards. God had guarded Christ through all of this. But then when he leaves, he goes through Samaria. Why? The Bible says because he needed to. Because he needed to. There was a miraculous open door. If anybody would not receive the Messiahship of Jesus Christ, it would be a Samaritan. If there was anybody who would not receive a Jewish Messiah, it would be the Samaritans. And yet he's walking right up the middle, the road that went straight up through there toward Galilee, crossing right through the middle of Samaria, and then he goes there and gets tired and he sits down by a well and says, go get us something to eat, guys. And while he is there, he is not just resting, he is waiting. He is waiting for that divine appointment. Do you know anytime you have an open door to do anything for the Lord and for his glory, that is a miracle in your life? Because God is the one who did that. Start thanking him and blessing him for working his miracles for you. So he could have taken the road by the sea, never would have met this woman. He could have gone to the other side of the Jordan. That's the area called Perea. It means the beyond. And go around Samaria and he never would have met this lady. But he goes up that road right through Samaria. And right about where Jesus is, there's a fork in the road. Remember Yogi Berra said, if you find a fork in the road, take it. And there it is. But Jesus didn't take it either way. He sat down, sat down there at that ancient well, very old by the time Jesus came there. And uh, this is the road where he needed to be at that particular time. The miracle of the open door. Nobody thought this would be a great ministry opportunity, and yet we're reading about it and talking about it. It's preserved in the Word of God all these thousands of years. And number four, it's what I have in quotes here, the divine coincidences of life. Now, that friend I told you about before, he wasn't entirely wrong about it. Just in that case, 
he was wrong. So you've got to use some wisdom about all of this. And you've got to do what we uh, said in our Sunday school lesson. You've got to walk in the spirit, not just fall for anything that comes your way. But at the same time, it says, coincidence number one, he came to a city in Samaria called Sychar. Coincidence number two, it's near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son, Joseph. Coincidence number three, he's tired and thirsty in the heat of the day. And there is a well there, a well that had been dug by Jacob years and years and years and years before. And then coincidence, the next one is he is wearied right at that time. And so he sets down by the well and that's where he met that particular woman. You see, there are a lot of things. Why did you run out of gas at the time that you did? Uh, not literally, but maybe you have to stop and fuel up and you go, oh, I can't believe this. I'm in a hurry and I have to stop and get gas. I wonder why. Those times when maybe you had to make that extra trip to the grocery store. How could I have forgotten this? Could there be a divine purpose and a divine appointment in that? Could it be that that, that time when... Uh, you have a certain neighbor move next door and you don't really like them or care much about them. But could that be a divine appointment? Could it be that you had to work overtime and you had to work with some different people than the ones you normally work with? Could that be one of those divine coincidences that's putting you in the right place at the right time for a particular purpose? We just don't think of life that way. Could it be that those times when your bank account was a little slim and it kept you from taking the trip you wanted to take or, or going to eat where you wanted to go eat, could it be that God was directing you somewhere else through that? And might it be that there is a divine reason for that quote-unquote coincidence? And you know what our problem is? We don't think that way. We think, I'm inconvenienced, I have to do this. What's going on here? I don't see anything good in this. And we get so inner-focused and selfish on that that we go through and we do that and we don't take any opportunity to look around and see, could there be an opportunity to do good? Could there be an opportunity to meet someone? Could there be an opportunity to, to befriend someone? Could there be an opportunity to pray for someone, to serve someone? Could there be an opportunity to share the gospel for someone? Now, Jesus is going to encounter this woman who had been married. She had had five husbands. And then the one she was living with was not her husband. Well, Jesus, you don't want to be around a scummy person like that, do you? Now, that's exactly who he wanted to be around today. And I just want to say to you, sitting here today, or maybe you're watching uh, online, that if you look at your life and say, I'm not good enough to go to church, I'm not good enough to be saved, I'm, I'm not the right kind of person that hangs around those kind of people, you are exactly the kind of people that Jesus befriends because Jesus is a friend of sinners. Amen? And that's why... We are saved. We are not a gathering of the perfect. We are a gathering of sinners saved by the grace of God. And when I think about everything that had to happen in order for this one encounter. You know, we look at what happened at the moment. Well, Jesus was there. He was tired. He sat by the well and then she came. Well, it goes way back before that. We're told in this text that the land had been purchased by, of all people, Jacob. Later his name was called Israel. That's way back in Genesis chapter uh, 33. That was a long time before Jesus. And yet the fact that Jacob purchased that land was integral to the story or it wouldn't have been uh, brought up 
in uh, this situation. He bought it for a hundred pieces of money. So all you people that are idiotically saying that Israel is some kind of an oppressive occupier of that land and throwing out the Palestinians, Jacob whose name was changed to Israel, and all of the Jews today are called the descendants or children of Israel. Jacob, notice this, that he paid money for that land. Okay? And he was there a long, long time before you ever heard of a Palestinian. That was their ancestral land, right? And uh, he dug a well. And uh, I, I think about that because Jacob, on his deathbed, left it to his son Joseph, and Joseph, after the 400 years of slavery in Egypt, you remember in Exodus, they carried the bones of Joseph back, Joseph back to the promised land. And guess where they buried him? Right near where this well was. Shechem is what it's called in the uh, Old Testament. And you can find that in Joshua 24 and uh, verse uh, 32. And when you think about... Uh, uh, this situation here, what about this well? This well had been dug. It was not a natural well. It didn't uh, just occur naturally. It had to be dug. Uh, the well was about 100 feet deep. How would you like to dig that without any power tools? In a rocky desert area. But evidently there was an underground uh, spring or something like that. So when they got far enough down, then the water would stay there. And basically the well was just a collection point, a cistern for the water that was underground there. But being 100 feet deep, no wonder when Jesus said to the woman, give me a drink and... Uh, she said, you don't, how can you give me living water? You don't have any way to get anything down there. 100 feet is a long, long, long way down. And uh, pity the guy who had to dig it. That must have been horrible. But that had all been preserved. So for all those hundreds of years, it's still there for Jesus to set by and for the immoral woman to come by there as well. And the Samaritans, of course, were hated. You know why they were hated? Some people wonder about this. Let me give you a synopsis. After uh, King Solomon, the kingdom split. There was a northern kingdom called Israel and a southern kingdom called Judah. And they were two different kingdoms. And the northern kingdom, Israel, had been invaded by the Assyrians. And the Assyrians took the northern kingdom captive and conquered them. That was around 720 B.C. And Samaria was the capital of the northern kingdom. You read about that in First and Second Kings. And the Assyrians did what conquerors do in those days. They took the people ca captive, nearly the whole population. Those ten tribes that made up that northern kingdom are lost. We have no idea because they were taken away and taken to different places to serve and never heard from again. Well, then the Assyrians, what are they going to do with that part, Samaria and others? Well, they brought in people from Babylon and different places like that and populated Samaria with these idol-worshipping Gentiles. Now, the Jews that remained in that place intermarried with all of the foreigners and compromised themselves racially and religiously and all of that. So after the uh, southern kingdom was taken away by Nebuchadnezzar later, and then when they came back, they despised those people and said, you're not even worthy to be called a Jew because you have abandoned your fathers, you've abandoned your history, you've abandoned your religion, and you have married non-Jews and polluted the race. You're no longer even worthy to be called a Jew. So all of these people in Israel that live below Samaria 
or above Samaria, the ones above Samaria and Galilee, they had to go down to Jerusalem for Passover. Didn't take a straight shot. They went around, went around. The Jews that were in Judea, the southern part, whenever they needed to go to Galilee, they went around and went around. They would never go through. But Jesus went through. And Jesus goes to a place that everyone else despised and went and actually talked to a woman that even the godless Samaritans despised. Jesus is talking to someone who is an outcast of the outcast. Jesus, what a friend for sinners. Think about that. Are you an outcast? Are you an outcast's outcast? You're a good candidate for salvation. You know that? Because Jesus loves to save sinners. The Apostle Paul said this is a faithful and trustworthy saying that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And then he added this. Of whom I am chief. He was the worst. Think about that. So you don't clean up to come to Jesus. Jesus finds you where you are and saves you where you are. And so these people, these Samaritans, that the, uh, the religious Jews, the racial Jews, the purebreds, we might call them, didn't want anything to do with the Samaritans, but Jesus did. And this woman who is coming to the well, nobody came to the well at the sixth hour. Women typically got the water for the uh, household and for the livestock, but uh, they didn't come at this time. Why did she come at that, that time? Because she was too embarrassed to go with the other women. And the other women wouldn't walk with her. And didn't want to be seen with her. Or have anything to do with her. So she comes at this odd hour of the day. And there she meets a Jewish guy. Sitting at the well. And they begin to strike up a conversation. And the rest is of course history. What a friend of sinners our Lord is. I want to ask you a question. Could it be. That the providence of God, God has preserved you and guided you to bring you to this point to where you realize now that you're a sinner, you cannot save yourself, and that Jesus is the only way to salvation. That he died on the cross for you, he suffered the wrath of God on the cross for you, and he rose from the dead so that you might have eternal life. Could it be that today is your day where you call out to the Lord and surrender to Him and ask Him to save you and to forgive you of your sins because of what Christ has done? That would be a wonderful thing because it's not by accident. Secondly, what about you, Christian? Do you really view your day as yours or is it God's? And is He guiding you every single day to places that you normally wouldn't go to people you normally wouldn't speak to because he is giving you an opportunity to serve him, to be a witness for him, and to be a help to someone who is also made like you in the image of God. This is what we call providence. This life is not our own. Our life belongs to the Lord. And far too often, we just take matters into our own hands. So... What are you going to do with all of this? Well, the first thing I would say is, please don't be passive. When you read in the Bible, you read words like, be diligent, be careful. We read words like, get wisdom. 
We read words like that. So don't live your life with, oh, whatever will be, will be. God never wants you to do that. Be on the alert. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 16, verses 13 and 14, watch, stand firm in the faith, act like a man, the King James says. In other words, be mature and be strengthened and then let all you do be done in love. That doesn't sound passive to me. That sounds like something we're to pay attention to, something we are to be diligent about. We also need to make good decisions, to be filled with the Spirit of God and to know the Word of God so we know what the will of God is and so we don't wander off into sin or wander off of the path, but we follow the Lord because we're walking in obedience and walking in holiness. The other thing I would say is you've got to do, as we talked about in our Sunday school lesson, don't just be available just in case somebody might need help. Look for opportunities. Look for opportunities. And you see Jesus here that uh, guided by the providence of God through various factors, he is taken out of Judea. He's brought up to Samaria, that unlikely place, and he's going to meet an unlikely woman. And through her conversion, we're going to see that an entire vi village in Samaria, of all places, comes to know and to receive the Lord Jesus Christ. Folks, oh, what wonderful things could be done and are being done if we could just recognize them and if we could just be obedient during the providence of God as He guards us and as He guides us through our lives today. So I hope that gives you a little bit more of an understanding. God is actively working in you, in our church, in our lives, whether we can see it or not. But it all has a purpose. I think about our church. Those of you who have been around longer than me, how many opportunities has this church had to die? But we haven't. We're still here. We're still functioning. God is preserving us because He has a purpose for us. And with that being said, next week we're going to have our Thanksgiving dinner that night. Bring somebody Bring a lost person. Brother uh, Preston Burns is going to share the gospel that night. And you want them to hear him share how to be saved. They're sick of listening to you, but when they hear his accent, they'll certainly listen to him, right? Yeah. He says that's the language of Zion. <laughs> so bring somebody. Now, you're going to have to work to do it. You're going to have to actually spot them, pray for them, invite them, and bring them here. Do it. Bring people from the community. Bring people outside of your family. Bring people in your family. Bring them. Let's fill the place up. That means you're going to have to bring some food too. So sign up to bring food and bring more than is required on that. Because let's just trust God that we're going to need it. Right? Let's be prepared for all of that. If God meets us at the point of our expectation, then don't just bring a, a little thing there and say, well, this will be plenty. We'll probably have leftovers out of this can of green beans. Don't do that. Let's think about what God could do in the lives of people if we were diligent and praying. And Jesus said, the fields are white, ready to be harvested. Pray the Lord of the harvest that he will send forth laborers. So I'm going to challenge you to do that. Let's do that. Let's fill the place up. And let's trust God that we're going to see some people saved on that particular night. 
You say, well, in the providence of God, won't he just bring them in? If they well, notice he said, prayed that the Lord would send laborers into his harvest. That's how he works. Laborers, got to go to work. And in the providence of God, he'll keep you from bringing in somebody. And John MacArthur said one time that if, uh, you know, we happen to sneak in somebody who's non-elect, probably God will forgive us. <laughs> right? But that's not our business, is it? That's God's. So let's be diligent and go about the work of God, ministering to one another, serving one another, doing good as we have opportunity to all, but especially the household of faith. Okay? God guides and God guards, and you can trust Him for all of that. Okay? Let's pray together. Lord, I don't know what we or anybody else is going to face in the next day, the next week, the next months, but I know that you will have prepared them and I know that you will see ahead to everything that they need and that they will trust you and walk with you, they will be preserved through that until the time that you call them and us home. And I thank you that we see that even in the life of Jesus. You preserved and guarded your son until it was his time to die where he could fulfill what he came for but during the meantime, you also guided him. You made sure that he was always at the right place, always at the right time, always at the right circumstance. Even at this place where it's hot and dry, he's thirsty and weary, and he has to sit down and he has to rest. And look what happened. Help us to remember that the small things in our life can turn out to be big things if we only had eyes to see the plan and the purpose of God. Sometimes we can't. But there are probably many more times when we can if we would only be walking in the Spirit and paying attention and taking advantage of the opportunities that we have. Forgive us where we haven't and help us as we do and to understand this all fits in the plan of a holy, sovereign God who is the blessed controller of all things. And for that, we give you praise, glory, honor, and we thank you for it. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. And if you agree, would you say amen? amen. Thank you.